morning. Uh, since, um, since last Sunday, uh, I have had uh, three Thanksgiving meals, um, none of which, believe it or not, uh, were at a truck stop. And I'm not sure if I should be thankful for that or if I should feel like I've missed out on something. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, not only do you need uh, to hear the story that Matt McDermott uh, told last week, but also you need to listen to the sermon that he preached uh, last week on on thankfulness. Uh, It will be both challenging and encouraging. Uh, all at the same time, and so that is that's available on our website, I think, um, and you can check it out there. Uh, that sermon, along with uh, the elders over the past thirteen weeks, has shown us that that God works and uses faithful men to preach the word. And maybe maybe you like me. I've listened to some of the sermons as they have been preached in our series through Colossians, and you thought you were the only one in the congregation. Like the sermon was prepared specifically for you, whether for conviction or for encouragement. That's, that's part of the wonder of the word preached. That, that God, by His Holy Spirit, speaks through His Word to teach, rebuke, and train in righteousness. Because the Word of God is living and active. And, and God promises to work through His Word. And what a joy it has been to see that promise realized. I'm thankful for the gifts that exist in this body And the way that God is using us, he's using all of us uh, to spread the gospel. And that that is exactly what I want to talk about this morning. From Paul's final final instructions and greetings to this one particular church, the church at Colossae. So I have three points for you this morning and they form one sentence That sentence is this, the gospel advances through persistent prayer, is confirmed in our lives by wise conduct, and has a role for all believers. Those are the three things that we're going to look at from the text this morning, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Let's go ahead and read the passage, we will pray. And then we will spend some time talking about it this morning. So Paul starts in verse 2 of chapter 4 by saying this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. 
I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your inspired and inerrant word. May it serve this morning as as what guides us in faith and in practice. God, as we open your word together, we ask that that your spirit would would do the work that you promised to do in, in giving us understanding of your word. But not only understanding, God, we ask that you would help us to be doers of the word as well. And as we study this passage, if if there is conviction, God, may we submit to you. If there's encouragement, may we praise you. But help us in all of this to do this together and to do it for your glory. We pray, God, that you would be with us this morning, that you would receive the honor and the glory that is due your name. We look forward, God, to how you will work. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First point, the gospel advances through persistent prayer. So the first word in our text this morning is a very important word. Continue. And and the word continue assumes that you've started in the first place. Paul has, has modeled prayer much already in this book. And, and in the opening verses, Paul is praying for the Colossian church that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
And now as he draws this book to a close, the last thing he wants them to know is that they need to pray. So he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. This is not just a a prayer here or a prayer there. This is a life of prayer. And, and, And all of the things that Paul has called us to do so far in this letter, the ways that he has called us to live, cannot be done without prayer. All of what he has said about submission, about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, about doing all things for His glory, letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, setting your minds on things above, stopping the indulgence of the flesh, and being rooted in Christ. All of those things require prayer on our part. And so the truth contained in these final instructions is that all power comes from God and we are utterly dependent on Him. And through prayer, our needs are expressed and met. To continue steadfastly in prayer means that you keep the conversation open with God. The mindset that comes with this is, is one of dependence. And, and when, you are, when you realize that you are dependent on God for everything, you keep Asking him to supply in prayer. So our our devotion to prayer is a continual expression of our need for God. So I think the opposite then is is also true. To be prayerless is to be prideful. Any lack of prayer in our lives reveals a self sufficiency in our hearts. It it reveals that whatever we're not praying about, we think we don't need God for. So, So may we know our need for God and continually ask Him to meet that need in prayer. He also says to be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Jesus instructed his disciples in a similar way in in Mark chapter 14, verse 38, where he said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I think that this means two things for us. First, praying is a way to avoid falling into temptation. Are you being tempted in some way? Pray. Pray. Second, I think we should choose times when we can focus on praying to pray. I I don't know if you know this or not, but it's impossible to pray while you're sleeping. Now, I I mean, sure, you you could dream about praying, but those are not the kind of prayers Paul is calling us to in this passage we realize the weakness of our flesh and see the need that we have for God. So we call out to Him to meet our needs. 
And so then what I think this means for us, and so, so not necessarily a direct meaning from the text, but, but maybe more of a way that we can practice this with one another, is that we should pray specifically. Vague generalities are, are common among brothers and sisters in Christ for, for one reason or another. You know, when you're asking someone for prayer, it's not always appropriate to share all of the details, and I get that. But when you come to God in prayer, do you realize that, that He already knows all of the details? And, and He won't be surprised to hear that you're struggling with something? So, so instead of, of coming to God in, in prayer and saying, you know what, God, I'm, I'm really struggling today. I could really use your help. Why not name the struggle? Why not come to Him instead and say something like, God, I am, I am struggling with pride right now. Help me to humble myself. Or, or maybe, maybe, God, I am, I am struggling with lust. Help me to keep my thoughts pure. Or, or, or I feel the need to gossip or slander about this person. God, help no corrupting talk to come out of my mouth. Or as Paul is instructing here, God, I desire to share the gospel, but I need you to provide me with opportunities and clarity. Help me to speak the truth in love and to look for the opportunities that are in front of me. Getting specific helps us to remember the depth of our need. Now, I don't think it's wrong to pray vaguely, but I do think it's better to pray specifically. Not, not because God needs to know specifically what you're facing, but because we need to know and be constantly reminded how deep our need is. And, and now I'm not sure that I can give chapter and verse for this, but I think vague prayer gets vague answer. And that does not lend itself to persistent prayer. But, but when you pray specifically for an opportunity to share the gospel with your barber, and God gives that to you, that specific answer drives you back to prayer. First, in thanksgiving. And secondly, for more. A vague prayer doesn't lend itself to persistence. It doesn't lend itself to continuing steadfastly. James chapter 2 verse 4 says, You do not have because you do not ask. So, so there may be things in our lives that God is not giving us because we're not asking for them. Maybe the things we're asking for are too vague. So we need to pray more specifically. Paul is specific in his request to the Colossian church. So let's model that in our prayers. And, and, and all that to say that, that persistent prayer is not an event. It's a lifestyle. We should live lives that are marked by prayer as humble recognition of our need for God. And we do it with thanksgiving. 
We have much to be thankful for. And prayer is a time when we can thank God directly for those things. Salvation, grace, mercy, His Word, other believers, fellowship, Christ and His church, opportunities to serve, His help in avoiding temptation, an opportunity we had to share the Gospel and the clarity that He gave in doing so, and so on and so forth. If ever you are struggling to find a reason to be thankful in prayer, think of this. If you have been adopted into the family of God, you have full and free access to the Father. And you can seek Him for what He delights to give. We do not approach God reluctantly. We approach Him freely because of what Christ has done. There is much to be thankful for in that truth alone. The creator of this universe not only hears us when we pray, but he answers. Think of all of the prayers that you have prayed in your lifetime. And think of the many ways that God has answered. And be thankful that he does. And then feel free to express your praise and thanksgiving to Him. Praise God for how He has answered our prayers. Praise God that we can express our needs to Him. And praise God that He meets our needs. Now even though Matt last week did not preach in the series in Colossians, it fit wonderfully. Because thankfulness is a major theme in Colossians. And it should be one of the primary characteristics of the Christian church. Are you marked by thankfulness? It would be my prayer that we as a church would be marked by thankfulness to God. Paul then goes on to say specifically how the Colossian church can be praying for him and for his ministry partners. He gives two ways to pray. First, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And secondly, that he may make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. Do you hear what Paul is asking? Paul wants the Colossian church to pray that he would have opportunities to share the gospel. But not only that, when he has those opportunities, he's asking them to pray that he would be clear in his speech. Now, think about who is writing this instruction. Paul. One of the single greatest missionaries who ever lived traveled an estimated 10,000 miles to spread the gospel. The apostle who, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote 28% of the words of the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, including Romans, 
which is arguably the clearest explanation of the gospel ever recorded. This Paul is asking for prayer from this church, not only for opportunities to share the gospel, but that when he gets them, that he would share clearly. And now, now just to be clear here, Paul is not doing this merely to model how we should pray for one another. He's asking for prayer in these areas because he knows his need. Paul knows that it is God alone who opens the door for the word and provides the needed clarity to explain the mystery of Christ. So he asks them to pray for him. Now if that is what Paul is asking for, don't you think you and I should be maybe asking the same thing? We should be asking one another to pray for me in this way. Now, to be clear, Paul Paul was a sinful man. He even called himself the chief of sinners. And yet, God used Paul greatly. And I don't want to unduly put him on a pedestal. But we need to realize that the greatness of Paul did not come from himself. It came from God who supplied what he needed. God supplied in this way for Paul. And and he will provide for us in the same way. But all we have to do is ask. Ask God for opportunities to share the gospel and clarity when he gives us those opportunities. I think think that the advancement of the gospel starts with prayer that the gospel would advance and that we would be ready to share it. And I think as well, it's interesting, you can can learn a lot about about someone by listening to them pray or or hearing what they ask prayer for. And, And we learn a lot about Paul Specifically by what he doesn't ask for. Just to jog your memory, Paul is writing the book of Colossians in the early 60s AD from prison. He also wrote Ephesians and Philemon at the same time. And in none of these letters does he ask that they would pray that he gets out of prison. Paul knows he's in prison because of the gospel. But instead of praying he would get out of that bad circumstance, he asks that in that bad circumstance, he would have the opportunity to share the gospel. Paul is asking for prayer to do the very thing that landed him in jail. And I think in doing so, he is showing That his mind is set on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul's priority is prayer. He modeled prayer in this letter and now is calling the Colossians to persist in prayer because the mission of God requires the power of God. 
Paul has, has laid out exactly what the mission of God is already in chapter 1, where he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul's desire is that the mystery of Christ, the hope of glory, should be made known among the nations. And in the awareness of his own need and weakness, he asks for prayer because he knows only God can enable him to carry out the task to which he has been called. Persistent prayer is necessary for gospel advancement in Paul's mind. What about yours? Do you pray in these ways? Do you ask your brothers and sisters in Christ around you to pray with you that God would open a door for the Word? And that when He does, that you would speak it clearly? Do you pray in these ways? I'll be honest with you. I don't. And I have been greatly convicted about it this week. So, so will you pray this for me? Will you pray for me that I would have opportunities to share the gospel and that when I do, God would provide clarity for me? It's an area I have consistently failed in. And by God's grace, I would like not to. You and I need to pray in this way. God alone opens doors. God alone empowers us to share clearly. God alone brings dead people to life. So we need to pray in this way. And the mystery that Paul is talking about here, the one that has been hidden for ages, the bringing in of the Gentiles to the people of God, is no longer hidden. And what those Old Testament saints only knew by faith, we know by name. And it is that name that we must proclaim. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray that I would be faithful in proclaiming that name. Pray for those around you that they would be faithful in proclaiming that name. Pray for our missionaries that they would be faithful in proclaiming that name. And even when it's difficult... Let's persist. Or as, as our text says, let's continue steadfastly. Paul is in chains praying this prayer. But even when it's not easy to persist, may we persevere knowing that the gospel advances through persistent prayer. Now I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm learning a lesson in persistent prayer uh, in another area of my life right now. Um, 
having had a son, we are praying things for him that may not be answered for years. Praying for his salvation. Praying that he would walk faithfully with the Lord for his entire life. And and for faithfulness as parents to present him with his need for a savior. Now you better believe that these are not one-time prayers. And this is the mindset that we should have in praying the way Paul asks for in this text. There must be persistence in our prayers so that we don't forget our need for God. So the gospel advances through persistent prayer. Second, the gospel is confirmed in our lives by wise conduct. In verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on to give instructions on how Christians should live around non-Christians. Paul says that we are to walk in wisdom. Walk is being used as a metaphor here for a way of life, and it has been used as such already in this book, chapter 1, verse 10. And so the way that we are to walk in wisdom, Paul says, was by making the best use of the time. And so I think that means for us that that our way of life should have as its focus things that will serve the gospel. In other words, if we were to say it differently, we, we could say, don't let the gospel you preach be contradicted by the life you live. Do you realize that, that, that non-Christians, people who do not believe in, in God, who, be, who do not believe that Jesus is Lord, are probably not going to open up God's Word and read it. But you know what they will read? Your life. The world's Bible is the life of a Christian. And they will read it more critically than anything they have ever read. So pray that you would not contradict the message you preach with the life you live. Because the way that you live will either give or take credibility from the message that comes out of our lips. And Paul's instruction here is that we should make every effort to confirm with our lives the message on our lips. The way you live won't save someone. Only the gospel can do that. But the way you live may be your platform to speak the gospel to someone. Wisdom comes from God, so we should pray God would give us the wisdom we need to live in a way that confirms what we preach. His second instruction here gets a little more specific and focuses on how we should speak. Speech, our speech specifically, is to be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, surely this brings to memory the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.13 about being the salt of the earth, not losing our saltiness, so on and so forth. But I think in this case, the image that's being used is a little bit different. Uh, Jesus was talking about the preserving power of salt, but I think Paul is talking about 
our speech adding flavor. I think it's an illustration that is, that is further explaining what he means by graciousness. Simply put, I think, our speech shouldn't be bland. There should be a gracious flavor to it. Speech, after all, is, is an overflow of our hearts. And it should be filled with the grace that we have received. Now, we could even go back to, to verse 5 to explain this verse a little bit further. The saltiness of our speech should bring out the wonderful flavors of the gospel in our conversation with non-believers. Our words should taste gospel-y. Will you allow me to make up a word like that? Our words should taste gospel-y. They should taste good as we present the gospel to people. And we should do all that we can to be sure that the gospel is heard. And the better our words taste, the more the message is confirmed with the life we live, the more this is likely. We should be full of grace in our speech so that the gospel is heard. That is our part of faithfulness in this process. Our job is to get the gospel to the ears of non-Christians. But only God can take it from the ears to the heart. But if we don't get it to the ears, as it says in, in Romans 10, they will not believe in the one of whom they have never heard. So without changing the message in any way, we get the message to their ears and trust God from there. So I would ask you in that regard, how is your speech to non-Christians? How is, how is your life confirming the message that you preach? There should be a Christian flavor to the way that we talk, but it should be more than just those, those Christian cliches that are easy to come out. It should be more important matters that will invite people into the light of the gospel. Because do you realize each person we meet is going to need something different? And yet, each person we meet is going to need the same thing. The gospel. And we must be ready to give it. We must be ready to give the gospel in our speech, our lives, should not keep them from hearing. So do you know it well enough to share it? Think, think here for a second. If, if you had to summarize the gospel in one sentence, what would you say? Maybe you could say something like this. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. Now surely there is more that we can and should say. But that would serve as a good summarization to be ready to pull out at a moment's notice. And, and then from there, uh, you can talk about his perfect sinless life. Uh, you, you can talk about his, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, 
We must speak of the peril that exists for anyone who who rejects the lordship of Jesus. Anyone not in Christ will experience the full wrath of God. But those who place their faith in Christ have no wrath to fear because Jesus took it in their place. So I, I wonder if, if you here this morning have placed your faith in Jesus. Now, I, I'm sure the majority of you have. But I am compelled to ask each of you to consider this truth here this morning. From, from young to old, do not presume that your presence here makes you good with God. Only Jesus can do that. And if you have not placed your faith in Him, I wonder what might be preventing you from doing that right here, right now. It may be your pride or even your own sense of self-righteousness. Whatever it may be, Confess to God that you believe He is right about what He says about you and and what is necessary to be made right with Him. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and you need what Jesus alone offers. Today, Today is the day of salvation and you can come to Him right now and find rest. To bring this then full circle, in light of what Paul says in verses 2 through 4, we are ready to present the gospel every day in our lives by persistent prayer. Pray to be used by God to speak His truth and to let your life match what you say. Pray that God would help you notice the opportunities right in front of you and that you would speak clearly, making the best use of the time. Persist in prayer and walk in wisdom shining the light of Christ wherever you go and know that the gospel is confirmed in our lives by wise conduct. Thirdly, then, the gospel has a role for all believers. I've been struck by this portion of the passage for some time now. These these final verses might seem like, oh, you know, it's just it's just the end of the book. I can I can just kind of skip over that. You know, I can catch up on my daily reading, don't have to don't have to bother with that portion. But I can assure you, there is much to learn from these final verses. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Uh, Some of them have greeting sections that are longer than others, and I think Colossians is only only rivaled by Romans uh, chapter 16. But these sections of the letter have have much to teach us, and, and they're here for a reason. So let's look at the reason for this one in particular. In verses 7 to 18, Paul, 
names 10 different people specifically and shows in some way how they are crucial to the spread of the gospel. One thing is clear from this letter. God uses all believers to do His work. Ministry is not reserved for those who are paid to do it. Ministry is for Christians. Ministry is not reserved for those who are in leadership at a church. Ministry is for anyone following Jesus. And ministry is not reserved for for people who get the recognition. Ministry is for all believers. And what I find fascinating about this, this section, this last section, comes from something I mentioned 13 weeks ago in the introduction to Colossians. Paul neither started this church nor ever visited them. He was never there. And yet he names ten people who are doing the work of ministry there at the Colossian church. Now now surely there were more. But these ten were known and commended by Paul for the role they were playing in the mission of God. And it is clear that Paul knows that he needs other people and that God works through more people than just him. So do you think that's the attitude we have about ministry here? Is ministry reserved for some supposed special class of Christian? Or is it for anyone who claims the name of Christ? I would would argue that if we are going to see the gospel advance in this community... We better have the understanding that each of us are to play a role. Each of us has a job to do because every Christian is empowered by the Holy Spirit with something that is crucial to the body. And if you're not playing your part, then the body is not functioning as God designed it to function. And that's a problem Because we need you. Paul mentions something specific that each person is is doing in regards to the mission of God. Tychicus and Onesimus, now these uh, these are some hard names to pronounce. And I've learned, they teach you this in seminary, that if you just say it confidently, you'll be all right. So I don't know if this is actually how they would have been saying their names, but Tychicus and Onesimus are both called faithful. And they have the job of sharing with the Colossian church what God is doing in another part of the world through Paul. They serve to encourage the body by telling of the work of God. Maybe they even got a missionary moment in the service to tell the body about how someone they are supporting in ministry is struggling or is in need of prayer. They served as messengers on Paul's behalf so that their prayers could be specific for him. And not only that, they were to encourage their hearts. Something that they surely would have been encouraged about was to hear of Onesimus being called a faithful brother. Why? 
There's an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to the transformation of Onesimus. The book of Philemon, feel free to go home and read it this afternoon, it's, it's only 25 verses, is Paul's instructions regarding Onesimus, who was an escaped slave, but is now returning to his previous master, not as a slave, but as a faithful and beloved brother who is crucial to ministry. This is evidence of the transforming power that should exist in the body. When someone is made new by Jesus, their old identity passes away and they get to work in ministry. Aristarchus is in prison with Paul, most likely for the same reason as Paul, sharing the gospel. Mark, most likely was John Mark, who had a sharp disagreement with Paul, but has now been reconciled and welcomed with justice. And they are both serving Jesus faithfully. And all of these men so far named are comforting Paul because they are fellow Jewish converts. Epaphras struggles for the Colossian church in prayer. Specifically, that, that they would stand fully matured in the will of God. We need pastors like Epaphras who will persist in prayer for their congregation. Luke was Paul's doctor and served him in many ways along with Demas. Luke also wrote two books of the New Testament, both Luke and Acts, which are still serving the church to this day. Nympha had the means to have, her, have the church meet in her house. This was crucial because they had no other place to meet than houses. And, and Nympha was able to meet that need. Archippus was, was probably an elder in the church at Colossae. And, and he was now serving as, as its pastor in the, in the absence of Epaphras. But what is clear is that each person played a role in advancing the gospel. We learn a lot from the mention of these people. We see that Paul has great care and concern for his fellow ministers. And we should too. We need to realize that we need one another to do what God has called us to do. The Christian life is not one of seclusion, we need each other not only for the work of ministry, but to press on to the goal of maturity. Epaphras prays for that. And Paul makes the point of this letter that Christians would be made complete in Christ alone, rooted and grounded in Him, so that they could grow deep and live tall together. We need each other if the church is going to be who it is called to be. And we need to realize that we can't do it alone. There's also a warning here, though. While we need each other, we can't serve as the foundation of the church. Demas shows us this. Paul mentions him here, as well as in Philemon, which, as I said, were both written in the early 60s AD. But in 2 Timothy, which was written just three years later, in verse, uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4, we read this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
Three years separates the writing of these two letters. Demas has drifted and is no longer helpful to the work of ministry. And this this will happen. And it is why that we can't be the foundation upon which we build. We will fail one another in many ways. So even in our need for one another, there's a need that we can't meet. We need each other, but our foundation can't be each other. The only foundation the church can have is Jesus Christ. He will never fail us. He will never desert us. And He will always be faithful to His bride. And I have particularly enjoyed this this series through Colossians because I think we've seen this at some level. Each man who, who preached brought their own unique gifts to the pulpit. And we saw through that that God uses all kinds of people to do the work of ministry. But I think even more specifically, we've seen and learned this lesson a little bit more as Pastor Tim has been on sabbatical. Do you realize that the work of ministry has gone on without him? Now, sure, we have missed him and, and missed the gifts that God has given him But the ministry of this church is founded on one man. And it's not Pastor Tim or any of the elders. It's the God-man Jesus Christ. And that is why ministry goes on. Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So may this church always be founded on Jesus. The way we can ensure this will be through persistent prayer, living lives of wisdom, and stepping into the role of the gospel that we've been called into. So I wonder how you're doing with all of this. Take take time to consider the instruction of Paul measured against your life. And where there is not agreement, ask God that He would help you to live in line with His Word. And so I think that means three things for us. Firstly, pray like Paul. Set aside time in your regular prayer time to pray that God would give you opportunities to share the Gospel. Pray as well that He would give you the necessary necessary clarity as you share the Gospel. God will answer that prayer. So be ready. And as much as possible, be specific in your prayers and prayer requests so that you are reminded of your need for God. May we see prayer as necessary to the mission God has called us to. And may we see prayer as the source of direction and power for the mission of the church. How will you respond to Paul's call to prayer for gospel opportunities and clarity in them. May our response be to make prayer a priority. Secondly, walk with wisdom. Ask God that the life you live would not contradict the gospel you preach. 
Ask God for deeper clarity and understanding of the gospel message so that your speech would be seasoned with salt. We pray for opportunities and clarity, but we should pray too that we would have wisdom to present the message in a way that is accessible to the hearers. Because we need the wisdom of God to speak the message of God. Thirdly, do your part. You have a crucial role to play in the advancement of the gospel. Are you playing it? The ministry of this church can't function at full capacity without you. Paul makes it clear the importance of relationship in ministry. And we should work hard at cultivating relationships and commending those who serve with us in seeking to make the gospel known. So may we be grateful for those who serve with us and express it to them and to others. I've been extremely grateful for the people that that God has placed around me in ministry here. This congregation has affirmed and encouraged me in both my calling and my gifting. You have sharpened me as a preacher and as a teacher by giving me opportunity and feedback, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I, I still remember with trepidation the first sermon I ever preached at Big Woods. I'm not sure why there was ever a second, if I'm honest. And yet here I am, eight years or so later, because of how this congregation has poured into me. I, I just want you to know that I am thankful for you as partners in ministry. I'm thankful for the many men who have poured their lives into me and have helped me grow in Christ-likeness. I'm thankful for all the marriages that I have watched and, 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 and how I have learned to love my bride by watching them. I'm thankful for the, for the many parents who model godly parenting It has been a great help and encouragement to me. God has given me relationships and and partners in ministry who who have encouraged me, walked alongside me, and called me out when I was wrong. I've been blessed to sit around the elders' table and, and, and see men who love and desire the best for the body of Christ. I've sat under faithful preaching that has formed and shaped my walk with Jesus. And so much more. And time would prevent me from naming every single person in the way that you have done your part. But let me simply close by saying, keep doing it. Continue steadfastly in the work of ministry here so that the gospel would advance through our persistent prayer, be confirmed in our lives by wise conduct, as we all do our part. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your many blessings. We're thankful for one another, and we pray and ask, God, that you would help us 
to encourage one another in what you've called us to do. May we always be founded on the rock who is Jesus Christ. And may may the gospel go forward from this place to the nations. We love you, God, we praise you and thank you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray.